Amen. Well, as uh, Nick said, my name is Michael, if we haven't met, and uh, it, it is so good to be with you here on this 4th of July weekend thing that lasts until Tuesday. Um, we're going to continue our study of 2 Corinthians, but before we get into that text, I, I want to describe an Old Testament story that will kind of serve as a, uh, a central metaphor for our study. Um, so this story I want you to think about might be familiar to you, or if you're here and you're new to Christianity, this might be the first time you've heard it. The story I'm talking about is the story of Nehemiah's rebuilding of Jerusalem. The Jews had been conquered, they had been exiled by the Babylonian Empire, and Nehemiah had heard reports that the city walls had been torn down, and he asked the king permission to go back and to rebuild them. Amazingly, the king not only gave him permission, but he made him a governor of the entire providence, and he sent him with support. But once Nehemiah got on the ground in Jerusalem, things took a turn for the worse. He's got a very motivated workforce of Jewish men, but he faced a lot of opposition. He was literally surrounded by enemies. He's got the Samaritans, the Ammonites, the Arabs, the Philistines, and all of them, the text says, were threatening to stop the work by coming and kill the Jews. And so morale was low, and the people were afraid. And in the midst of this despair, Nehemiah, in a very cinematic moment, gives this awesome, like, locker room pep talk kind of speech. He says to the men, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your wives, and your homes. I mean, it is, it is one of the greatest wartime speeches of all time. And after that speech, they, they came up with this brilliant plan to finish the wall, which they did, by the way, in less than two months. And so here was their plan. Each man had three things, three things. Each man had a sword, a trowel, which is a masonry tool, and each man had a section of the wall that he was responsible for. Every man had a sword for his enemies, a trowel for building up, and an assignment. Now turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In our text today, Paul is in a similar spot to Nehemiah. He is trying to rebuild something that has fallen into disrepair. He's surrounded by enemies. And he has three things that we also need today if you and I want to have an effective ministry like his. So 2 Corinthians 10, I'm going to start with verse 1. It says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away, I beg of you that when I am present, I, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This uh, is the beginning of, of the third and final section of Paul's 
letter to the Corinthians. And if you remember last week's sermon, you'll notice a total change of tone here. Before this, Paul was encouraging the Corinthians to be generous and to give to help the Christians in Jerusalem. And then suddenly, he shifts gears like a student driver. What's going on? What's happening here? Now, throughout this letter, Paul has been beating around the bush about these opponents, these false apostles. And now, in the final section of the letter, we get the showdown we've been looking for. We knew it would happen eventually, but here it is. It's like at the end of the Western. Uh, the, the camera suddenly pans towards the OK Corral. But instead of a normal shootout, Paul's opponents are cowardly. They're not there. They won't face him directly. They know better than that. And so, like the weasels that they were, they took a different approach. And their diabolical strategy was to undermine Paul's authority by lying about him. They make a number of accusations. First, they, they claim that Paul is a coward, that he's a pushover in person. And at the same time, they claim that he's a bully, that he's an abusive church leader that sends these nasty, mean letters. They claim that he is unspiritual, that he's probably not even a Christian. And they point out that he really doesn't measure up when compared to them. So let's work through Paul's responses to these charges. Verses 1 and 2 serve as kind of a warning for the Corinthians. He's, he's humbly begging them to reject the lies of his enemies. And while this, this whole letter is technically from, from both Paul and Timothy, that's what it says in chapter 1, verse 1, it's like Paul here steps up to the mic in, in order to make a personal plea. He says, I, Paul, myself. And then you can see him being a little sarcastic here. He, he's saying, it's me, Paul, you know, the guy who is a coward in person but a bully at a distance. And this is clearly a response to the accusation of his enemies. They were calling Paul a keyboard warrior. That he was a big mouth online, but he was a wimp in person. It seems that some of the Corinthians mistook Paul's meekness for weakness. And he's going to get into this more in the next section. But here Paul is focused on warning the Corinthians in order to win them back over. And he begs them in the meekness and gentleness of Christ to put his apostolic yoke back on again. It's like he's saying, please don't make me come down there and discipline you. I've said a very similar thing on road trips to my kids. <laughs> At the end of verse 2, we see another accusation that he addresses. These false apostles were claiming that he walked according to the flesh. This is their way of saying that he was unspiritual and vacillating between being a bully and a coward, that he was arbitrary, and that this is proof, according to them, that he was not on the high spiritual plane that they were on. And then in verses 3 through 6, Paul responds to this claim by explaining how he's going to deal with these enemies. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. He essentially says, yes, I am human, but I don't fight in a human way. And then he explains how he's planning to wage war on these false apostles. He describes the situation as a war. And what is at stake in this war? It's the souls of the Corinthian church. He was fighting a spiritual battle for souls, but he wasn't doing it using human wisdom or marketing strategies. Instead, his weapons were God weapons, and they were powerful. And in order to explain his weaponry, Paul uses a metaphor based on ancient siege 
warfare. So in the ancient world, if you wanted to capture and conquer a city, there were three basic steps. The first is that you would need to take down the stronghold. Stronghold is a defensive structure. It's, it's like a wall. It's something that would keep out invaders. And if you're familiar, it's, it's something like uh, Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings. Step two, after you get the stronghold out of the way, you take the people captive. You capture them. And then finally, step three is to punish any uprisings, any further rebellions. And this is Paul's war strategy as seen in verses four through six. And in case it hasn't struck you already, you might be surprised to notice that Paul is not on defense here. He's on offense. The strongholds that he's talking about destroying are defensive structures. Paul is the invader. And this is a very different vision of Christian warfare than you and I are used to thinking about. When we tend to think about ourselves in a battle, we tend to think that the church is on defense, that the enemies of God have surrounded us and we are inside praying and hoping that the gates don't fall down. But this is exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying here. He is saying that he is the invader and his opponents are the ones hiding behind the strongholds. Jesus says the very same thing in a familiar passage, but this point is often missed. Jesus says that he will build his church and that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Think about the imagery. Gates, in case you missed it, are defensive. They keep people out. Jesus is saying that his church will conquer the enemy's territory, that the defensive walls of hell will not stand a chance against the conquering Lord and his invading church. This is an important paradigm shift that we need to make. Paul is on the attack, not the retreat. His weapons destroy strongholds. What are the strongholds he's talking about? Well, he tells us right in the text. He says they're arguments, they're sophisticated opinions in which men barricade themselves against God and his gospel. Strongholds are ideologies, they're philosophies, that are raised up against God, they are often, but not always. They always end with isms a lot of the times. Darwinism, Marxism, Protestant liberalism, scientism, atheism. These are ideological shelters that unbelievers hide in to suppress the truth of God. They know that God exists, but they hide behind flimsy walls of suppression. Unbelievers live in God's world so they can't escape the reality of his existence even though they desperately try. In a manner of speaking, unbelieving thought is always calling on the mountains and rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And Paul's weapons destroy these strongholds. Once the stronghold is gone, then even thoughts that are brought against God are taken captive That verse, verse 5, is often used as a proof text. So we will take responsibility for our thought life, and that is certainly something we are called to do, to love the Lord with all of our mind. But you can see here from the context that Paul is not talking about his insecurity or some kind of lust struggle here. The thoughts that he is taking captive are not his. He's ready to challenge any disobedience, even at the thought level. 
And once he takes his opponent's territory, he promises to punish any further disruptions from them. The language is a little confusing in verse 6, but I take it to mean that Paul expects the Corinthians to obey before he comes down hard on his enemies. He will wait for their obedience before he punishes the disobedience of the false apostles. Now, I've said what Paul is fighting against, and I've even said that what his weapons are not, that they, they aren't physical weapons, they're not human wisdom, they're not clever strategies. So what is Paul's sword? What are these weapons? Well, it's not explicit in these verses, but we know from many, many places in Paul's epistles and from his ministry in the book of Acts that the spiritual weapons God gave Paul to fight his enemies were the gospel, the scriptures, and the ordinary means of grace. Baptism, communion, prayer, spiritual disciplines, word, water, bread, and wine. They aren't flashy, but they are effective. What will Paul use to destroy the false gospel of the enemy? The true gospel of Christ. How will he capture those who set out to harm the church? Prayer and instruction. How will, he, uh, how will the church continue in health after all the dust settles? By gathering weekly to worship Christ and by practicing church discipline? This isn't fancy stuff. It isn't out of reach. It's very simple. And by the way, that's true for us today. What is our sword? How will we contend against the world, the flesh, and the devil? What are our spiritual weapons? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, prayer, faith, Christian community. Does that sound like a Sunday school answer to you? Well, maybe they got some things right in Sunday school. <laughs> the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. The application in this section is so simple. Do not underestimate the gospel of Jesus Christ, and do not be afraid to wield it as a weapon. When you encounter someone hiding from God behind sloganeering and rhetoric, give them the gospel of grace. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. They don't need evidence. They need to hear the gospel that through Christ, God saves sinners. And when you are tempted to sin or to doubt, when your flesh is getting the best of you, remind yourself of that gospel. Sometimes you have to preach to your own choir. And when Satan attacks you or someone in your spiritual family, look to Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in the gospel. If you want to minister to others well, you will be required to fight, so learn to use a sword. But a sword is not the only thing that you need. Look with me at verses 7 through 11. It says, Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. 
For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. So Paul continues his response here to the false apostles by, by showing his pastoral concern for the Corinthians. He encourages them in verse 7 to take a look at the plain facts of the case. He says, look at what is before your eyes. It seems that his enemies had undermined Paul's authority by casting doubt on his Christian faith. And Paul says, this isn't all that complicated. Look at your spiritual genealogy. Paul is saying to them, if you are in Christ, well, that's, that's actually proof that I am. I'm the one who brought you the gospel in the first place. I'm your spiritual father, so you can't deny my faith without denying your own. Paul appeals to his authority here. He pulls rank, so to speak, but he does it for a good reason. He's concerned for the spiritual health of his spiritual children. Notice the care Paul takes and shows in addressing the accusations brought against him. He, he doesn't want them to be afraid of him. He explains that his job is to build up the church. And while he has a sword for his enemies, he also holds a trowel. And his job, as it relates to the church, is that of a builder. It's a builder. He said this way back in 1 Corinthians 3, but he considers himself to be a skilled master builder. What is he building? A Corinthian church, right? He's been given authority by God to build up the church. He is decidedly on their side, so he doesn't want to frighten them. But what could explain this apparent inconsistency in Paul's behavior? Why does he sometimes come across as meek and mild and other times as a dangerous apostolic gunslinger? Well, because he's responding to different situations. It's really no different than parenting. If you have a kid who is scared during a thunderstorm in the middle of the night, you don't yell at them. You do what any father would do when a child they love comes crying into their room at 3 a.m. You pretend to be asleep so your wife will have to deal with it. <laughs> I, I recommend a light snore. Don't oversell it. <laughs> the point is, your response to that situation will not be the same if you see your child beating up a neighbor kid on the trampoline in the backyard. Your response to that situation will be very different. And by the way, these examples are completely fictional. Any similarity to persons <laughs> living or dead or actual events, they're, they're purely coincidental. Paul is focused on and concerned with building up the church. In his epistles, he's always talking about this. He says, let all things be done for building up. He says that God gave the church her leaders for building up the body of Christ, and that when it's working well, it even builds itself up. He says that we shouldn't speak in a way that corrupts, but only as is good for building up. 
That's why he's writing to the Corinthians in the first place, why he's addressing all of these accusations. He wants them to thrive in their walk with Christ. He wants them to grow in Christian maturity. You'll notice this letter is not written to his enemies. It's written to the church. Well, mostly. There is one verse here where he kind of breaks the fourth wall. He shows that he's aware that the false apostles are going to read this letter, and it is awesome. So he, he addresses the charge that he's just a keyboard warrior. He says some people are saying this, and then he says, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. In other words, Paul says, go ahead, make my day. <laughs> he's not afraid of his enemies, and, and while he's not carrying a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world. <laughs> Paul was packing quite a punch. There was a form of apostolic authority at Paul's disposal that is not often discussed, but it does show up a few times in the Bible. Peter's death judgment of Ananias and Sapphira is a famous example of this. And even Paul himself cursed a magician, a wizard, in Acts 13 and blinded him. Paul was not bluffing. He was telling his enemies that he was, in fact, their huckleberry. The reason he's included this not-so-veiled threat to the false apostles is to encourage the church. He wants them to know that he's planning on dealing with the bad guys. His primary emphasis in this section is his desire to build up the church. And it is also very much the case that you and I should be carrying a trowel around. You and I are responsible for building up the church. We tend to think primarily as individuals when it comes to sin and righteousness. We rightly recognize that how we live impacts our life, but we vastly underestimate how our personal sin or our personal holiness affects our church as a whole. You might think your spiritual life is a private thing between you and God, but that is not the case. How you live your life is either building up or tearing down the body of Christ. Way back in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that they should purge the evil person from the church because, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. One man's sin was a spiritual threat to the whole covenant community. And when you continue an unrepentant sin, when you gossip, when you grumble to others about something a pastor said instead of talking to him about it, you are being helpful to the enemy. You are acting as a double agent. But in the same way, when your words and when your actions are righteous, it is a blessing to all those around you. When you come to church ready to worship and you sing loud, it is an encouragement to others. When you show up to small group on time and you've done your homework and you participate in the conversation willingly, it is a blessing to your group members. Scripture calls us to encourage one another and build one another up, to consider how to stir up, to consider it, think about it, how to stir up one another to love and good works. Our lives, our actions, our words need to be aimed 
at building up the church of God, encouraging others to grow in their faith and in their devotion to God. So grab a trowel and build up the body of Christ. Paul wielded a sword for his enemies, but he carried a trowel for his friends. And if you want to have an effective ministry, you will need to discipline yourself to build up the body of Christ with both your words and your actions. But there's one more thing that's absolutely necessary if you want to minister well for the glory of God. Look with me at verses 12 through 18. It says, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but we will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit and the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done at another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Now I'd like to point out, in in case you missed it, verse 12 is absolutely dripping with sarcasm. It's awesome. Paul is saying, we wouldn't even pretend that we are as awesome as the guys who constantly brag about how awesome they are. But then he points out that they're only great by their own standards, that they've created arbitrary standards and then declared themselves the winners of a made-up competition. It'd be like me shooting an arrow randomly into the wall and then painting a bullseye around wherever it happened to land. Or like the Academy Awards when Hollywood gathers for a night each year to award itself. (laughs) When these false apostles make themselves the measure of success, it's an easy target to hit. And when they do this, Paul says, they are without understanding. So Paul's enemies are commending themselves by themselves, but it is not the case that commending oneself is necessarily a problem. Believe it or not, boasting isn't all bad. It depends, of course, on what you're boasting about. Paul has been boasting about the Corinthians to Titus and to the Macedonians, and he's going to boast some more in chapters 11 and 12. Here in this section, he says that he will not boast beyond limits or boast in the labors of others, but that he will boast in a particular way, in a Christian way. And for Christians, the only boasting that we can do is in what God has done for us or through us. We cannot be proud of ourselves, no. But we can be proud of the Lord and what he's been able to do with jars of clay. Sometimes, if you're like me, we have this fake humility that denies the good and what we've done for God. Someone maybe thanks you for your service or ministry, for, for teaching a Sunday school class or, or something like that, and, and you blow them off. You, you say something like, that was, that was nothing. It wasn't very good anyway. Remember that God is pleased 
to use human weakness to reveal his glory, and that when we deny the work he's done through us, we are, in a way, denying him. Fake humility is just plain old pride. When we do this, we are so focused on ourselves that we overlook what God has done. We should boast in the Lord whenever he's been pleased to use us. Paul is proud of the Lord. Paul is proud that he was able by grace to be the first to bring the gospel all the way to the wild west in Corinth. He is proud that God used his efforts to build this local expression of the universal people of God. And where does this confidence come from? This confidence comes because Paul has great clarity that this was his assignment. He knew what God called him to do, and so he had great confidence in God accomplishing that assignment through him. Look again at verse 13. Paul says there that his leadership in the Corinthian church was assigned to him. Corinth was Paul's jurisdiction. He had just decided that he was responsible for them. God had sent him, and that gave him confidence. When God commends you, when he sends you to do something, you're confident. And by the way, Paul's assignment wasn't done in verses 15 and 16. Paul says, I've got more plans. He wants Corinth to be a missions hub for more ministry further west. I want you to notice the clarity that Paul has on his mission. Paul had a sword, a trowel, and a section of the wall that he was responsible for. He had an assignment from God. He had a calling. We used to have this, this word that encapsulated well this thing I'm describing, but but it's lost some of its former meaning. And the word I'm talking about is vocation. It literally means calling. But vocation is an often misunderstood concept. We've come to limit the term vocation to, to just the thing that pays our bills. But God calls us in way more ways than that. Think about this. If every day of our life is written in his book and if he's prepared good works in advance for us to do, and we can be certain that he has a calling, vocation for us in a number of areas, at home, at church, and at work. Some of your vocation is really obvious. You were either born into or you were adopted into a family. God could have had you be born in another family, in another time, in another place, yet he chose your family that time, and that place. Being a husband, a wife, father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, friend, neighbor. All of these are also callings. They are vocations given by God, and you are called by God to be faithful in these capacities. That is your section of the wall. This is, as Paul would say in verse 13, the area of influence that God has assigned. You are also a part of a church. Here you are. God has a vocation for you here, a calling for you. Some of you are called to be greeters or elders or small group members or small group leaders. More of you should come play drums on the worship team. 
But all of you are called to play some role in the church, and that is a part of your vocation, your assignment, your calling. Some of you have a vocation of a job. God has given you skills and talents that, listen, he uses to mediate his common grace to others. God, the giver of all good gifts, almost always, gives by using human means. When you sit down at a meal later today, don't think about it now, but later today you will. God has given you that meal using other people. God has called some people to be farmers and ranchers and truck drivers and grocery store stockers and busboys and all of that. He has governed and ordained toward blessing you with a meal. And when you thank him for that, when you pray and say, thank you, God, for this food, you are acknowledging the simple but profound truth that what people do for a living matters to God. No, your identity is not a baker or a candlestick maker. You are not your job, but it is very much the case that God wants to work in and through your job. And that should make a big impact on not only our motivations about work, but also what kind of work we do. I don't care how good your motivations are, you cannot be a drug dealer, a prostitute, or a hitman for the glory of God. Some jobs are, are just off limits for Christians, but in most fields, we need more Christians who will work for the glory of God and for the good of humanity in their vocation. Psalm 90:17 is a prayer that God would establish the work of our hands, that, that he would give eternal significance to the things that we do, and that includes the 40 hours a week you work, or 20 hours if you work from home. <laughs> Your work matters to God, and it should matter to you. So, what is your area of influence that God has assigned you in your family, here at GBC, or at your work? What is your vocation at home, at church, or in your career? Why are you here? What are you for? Do you know? If you have a sword and a trowel, that is great, but you need to know which section of the wall you are supposed to be working on. Paul's confidence in the face of all of these false claims came from knowing God had given him his assignment. If you're here and you don't know, I want to encourage you. It may not all be clear from the outset or even in the middle of it. In fact, it, it rarely is. I talk to men all the time who are struggling with this question. They're trying to figure this out. But here's the solution. You need to ask God. Some of you need to fast and pray and beg God to lead you in your vocation. And by the way, following God's vocation, his calling, doesn't lead to some sort of happily ever after for Paul the apostle. Paul had a very clear sense of his calling, and that actually led him into a lot of problems. But the thing that helped Paul during those times of difficulty and the thing that will help you persevere through hard times at home, at church, and at work is knowing 
that God has called you to be there at that time. That is why Paul is appealing to God's commendation, to to God's approval in this last section. When you live within the boundaries that God has for you in your life, you can be at peace in conflict. You can have confidence that comes from him. To wrap up today, I've, I've been trying to make the case that every Christian here who wants to minister well to others needs three things that we've seen in our text. You need to be able to fight, you need to be able to build up, and you need to know where God wants you to serve. You need an assignment. It isn't, however, the case that if you have all three of these things that you will be a self-sufficient, a competent minister, you will still need the Lord's help. You will still fall short of what he has called you to do and to be. In fact, the Lord is actually the only thing you really need. Because if you have him, you have everything. In Christ, you have the power to fight the enemy. You have the love to build up the people of God. And you have a clear calling. So here's the gospel for you today. Jesus Christ is our victorious king who has conquered Sin and death on our behalf, he fights for us and with us. And he is the one building his church. He has made us a holy priesthood, living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house that becomes the dwelling place of the living God. And he is the one who perfectly obeyed the calling of God on his life and death, even death on a cross. And he perfectly obeys his Vocation given by his Father that he should lose nothing of all that the Father has given him, but raise us up on the last day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us all we need in Christ for life and for godliness. But Lord, we acknowledge that we are sinful people, that we need your help. And so, Lord, we've come to worship you today. We've come to this covenant renewal because we are needy people and we know that you are the ones you are the one who has the words of eternal life for us so lord for my friends here and for myself i pray lord you would help us lord to understand the gospel such that we could wield it as a weapon against arguments brought against the knowledge of god lord i pray that you would give us a deep and profound love for your people and your church that we would build them up and lord i pray that you would help us to have a clear sense of what you have called us as a church and as individuals to do for the glory of God. We need your help. We pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen.